Beyond the Paper Gown inspires, informs, and empowers women with the latest information about our health and healthcare choices. Join in for provocative conversations with scientists, clinicians, policymakers, and innovators. Beyond the Paper Gown is hosted by Dr. Mitzi Crockover, internal medicine specialist and women's health advocate. The following information is for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. This information is not intended as a substitute for professional therapy or medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hi, I'm Dr. Mitzi Crockover, and you are listening to a special episode of Beyond the Paper Gown. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to introduce you to another thought-provoking show on the Offscript Health Media Network, FUMS. FUMS host, Kathy Reagan-Young, provides information, inspiration, and motivation for living your best life with multiple sclerosis through interviews with doctors, scientists, patients, legislators, insurers, authors, caregivers, and a long list of others. From highlighting the excitement surrounding finding a cause for MS to MS advocates fighting for the cause, this podcast takes on all aspects of the disease. You'll find FUMS at offscriptnot.com slash shows, or you can look for the link in our show notes. We knew it was coming. The decision to overturn Roe v. Wade was leaked months in advance of the announcement. Still, once it hit, it felt to me and to many others like an earthquake. And if you've ever experienced an earthquake, you know that shortly after the first jolt, for some time, you will experience aftershocks most of which are much less jarring than the first initial quake, but can also be pretty sizable and unpredictable. In fact, you never quite know when they're going to hit. So I couldn't think of a better analogy for what we've all just experienced. And just like earthquakes, which are pretty indiscriminate in terms of who they affect, this decision will impact everyone to some degree, admittedly some more than others, But no matter our gender, sexual orientation, political affiliation, or religion, we will all be affected in some way. The podcast you're about to hear is one of a series of four podcasts which aims to help you understand the many ways that we are all going to be affected. The aftershocks, if you will. It's taken from a webinar I hosted on July 6th, where we invited 11 expert panelists on four different panels to explain how the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade will make an impact on our health, our rights, our privacy, and even our economy. I hope it will inform you and inspire you to take action for your own protection and health, as well as for the communities you live and work in. The decision to overturn Roe v. Wade has brought up founded fears of botched abortions and vulnerable women and girls forced to carry risky pregnancies. But this decision has even broader implications on health, health care, physician training, and even the burden of chronic illness in whole populations of people. Unfortunately, I'm not being overly dramatic, as you'll hear during this panel discussion with our experts. Linda Goler Blount is the president and CEO of the Black Women's Health Imperative. The Black Women's Health Imperative is the first and only national nonprofit solely dedicated to achieving health equity for Black women in America. Dr. Kelly Lee Stecker is an OBGYN and founder of Patient Care Heroes, an advocacy organization for healthcare workers and their families. Dr. Sophia Yen is an adolescent medicine specialist and CEO and co-founder of PandiaHealth.com, an online subscription birth control company. 
Linda, let me go ahead and start with you. There's been much made about the fact that women of color and especially Black women will suffer disproportionately because of this decision. Please explain what that really means. Yeah. So this is, you know, this is more of what we've seen. We we saw it with COVID-19 just two years ago. It is more of the same. Anytime there's a change in policy and practice, Black and brown women, low-income women suffer most and first. So I think it's important to know that abortion was actually legal until Reconstruction, and it became illegal because of the needs of a labor force. Um, obviously, chattel slavery had, had ended. So what we, where we are now is we're putting the decision over what women can and cannot do with their bodies, how and when and if they have children in the hands of, of the state. So as I think about this, I think about how, to, you know, if I were a, a mother of a young daughter, how do I explain to her that these elected officials who look nothing like her have now determined that she can't be trusted to make the right decisions for her body and for her health, and they have to make the decision. So as we look at sort of abortion um, overall, the abortion rates declined um, from 2018 to 2019 by over 20% from 1.2 million down to 900,000. But since 2017, they've begun to creep up because of trap laws, crisis pregnancy uh, centers, economic insecurity. So we know roughly one in five pregnancies ends in abortion. um, And Black women are almost four times more likely to have an abortion and low-income women more likely to have an abortion than than white women and and upper-income women. 39% 39% of all abortions are, occur under, among Black women, 28% among white women, um, 25% among Hispanic. But the important thing to know is that the majority of women who have, choose abortion care already have children. The, the number one reason they choose to have an abortion is because they can't afford to have another child. They're, so they are making the best economic decision and health decision for themselves. So one of the things that, that really concerns me is that in half the states now where we where women can no longer have abortion, a big chunk of black and brown women live in those states and a significant percentage of low-income women live in those states. So we're going to see poverty rates increase by 15 to 20 percent. And a few years ago, there was a study that showed that a child born into poverty has about a 4 percent chance of ever leaving poverty. So with this decision to control women's body and not allow allow women to control their bodies. We're condemning perhaps generations of of children to a life of poverty and then all of the consequences that come when you're poor, lack of access to health care, lack of access to education, um, stable housing, safe housing, good food. So then we condemn them to more chronic disease, more infections, more diseases of what we call despair because you simply can't afford to be healthy. And and I'll just end with this, that we know that in the U.S., every year, 50,000 Black women die due to the consequences of racial and gender discrimination. So this decision or the reversal simply adds to that and makes living for these women even more difficult and frankly, less likely. You know, the, the, the long-term impacts you, that you underlined are so important. Um, and even rolling back, we now know that again, or we know that the United States has the worst record of all the developed countries with respect to maternal child health outcomes. 
And it's getting worse, not better. And we know that Black women are at an increased risk um, as well. And Lisa Harris, who's a professor of reproductive medicine at the University of Michigan, wrote in a recent article in the New, New England Journal of Medicine, maternal mortality will increase because abortion is far safer than childbirth. Data from the CDC shows that the risk of dying from childbirth is 50 to 130 times greater than dying from an abortion. And demographers estimate that maternal mortality will increase by 21% under a ban. But echoing existing disparities, 13% among white and 33% among birthing Black women. And in fact, during the pandemic, maternal mortality jumped 33%. And Hispanic and Black women were most adversely affected. And so what do you see in terms of this restriction or ban um, with respect to um, those numbers? Unfortunately, we're just going to see things get worse. I mean, it it is almost unconscionable to think that we live in a country that spends much more on healthcare than the next nearest country, you know, 70% more. We have the kinds of health conditions and and premature mortality rates that we have in, in this country, but we're going to see this increase. Part of what we're going to see is providers are going to step back and be less inclined, certainly not even to take the risk of providing abortion, but anything that might be considered or confused with abortion. A woman comes in with an ectopic pregnancy, and we've already seen stories where providers are saying, we're going to have to wait and let that become infected, perhaps septic even, and then provide a different kind of medical care. So providers are being put in the position of having to ask a woman to risk her life so that they don't get into trouble by providing needed abortion care. Kelly, do you want to step in and uh, talk to that? I do, because this is my lane kind of right now. So what we are seeing is really incredible throughout the country. And each state having a different set of legislation is quite honestly horrifying. We've all seen how well that worked during COVID, right? Um, For example, there was a 10-year-old that was sexually assaulted and couldn't get abortion care in Ohio, needed to go to Indiana for care, right? So we're really seeing significant risks to our patients. It's important to keep in mind that every medical association has come out and condemned this reversal. So American Medical Association, ACOG, American College of OBGYN, all of our professional organizations is saying that this is not ethical, this is not just, this is not something that we should be participating in because it is going to lead to worse outcomes. As an OBGYN, I also see that uptick of domestic violence, right? And so who's more at risk for domestic violence than someone with an unplanned pregnancy? No one, right? So we actually see that about 20% of women in pregnancy or are going to have domestic violence. So what is that going to mean? Well, that's going to probably also up the maternal mortality rate because we have individuals who are trapped into these relationships potentially. Potentially they were sexually assaulted by someone who was their partner, which I know that that's even a controversial topic nowadays. People are trying to decrease the rights of women to say that a partner sexually assaulted them. Um, But we've got these individuals who are trapped in relationships. And then what's going to happen with that? Well, then the mental health crisis is also going to become much more dire. Uh, And we also used to see more suicide because people couldn't get access to prenatal care, access to postpartum care, and so on and so forth. And so When I talk to my colleagues around the country, we're seeing significant um, changes in the makeup of the states as well. So, for example, I know many people who are leaving 
states like Georgia, Oklahoma, Missouri. And so when we have access issues to start out with, and then we pass legislation that's going to put physicians at risk and their license at risk, they're going to move to a state that is more um, pro-choice, like the state of Minnesota, where I live, thankfully, at this point. Uh, However, we are going to see more crisis and more deserts of care for people, which is also going to increase maternal mortality. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back to Beyond the Paper Gown. Okay. So, Sophia, we're talking about pregnancy right now, and you deal with adolescents for the most part and teens and who are on these college campuses in those different states that Kelly talked about, the different state regulations. What are you seeing and what are your suggestions? So as a mother of two teenagers who will soon be applying to college, I think for those of us um, in states that are hospitable to women's rights and that um, support a person's right to bodily autonomy, one, it's really important that everybody know about plancpills.org. And two, that everyone get emergency contraception and know the difference between the four different options. So the most effective emergency contraception is the copper IUD. You can also use the hormonal IUD. So if me, my daughter, my friend, my patient were sexually assaulted and they wanted the lowest possible chance of being impregnated by their rapist, you go to the ER and you say, throw down a copper IUD or a hormonal IUD. The second most effective is Ella. It's a prescription only emergency contraception. And this is my tip. What your doctor doesn't know could end you up pregnant. So I gave talks to a bunch of doctors and many of them did not know about prescription emergency contraception. Under the Affordable Care Act, it's available with no copay, no deductible, aka free. And so please get it. Please get it in advance. At Pandia Health, we write in the prescription, please give the patient the one with the farthest expiration date. This is for the future. Because if you walk in the pharmacy right now, they'll give you the one that expires this week because they're like, ah, she's going to use it. So let's just give her the one that expires this week. And then as physicians, I tell everybody never withhold birth control because if you withhold birth control, what happens? Somebody ends up pregnant and then you have to deal with an unplanned, unwanted pregnancy and or an abortion. So if you want to prevent abortion, give people birth control. And then lastly, plan B and its generics do not work. If your BMI is 26 or greater, not so good. 30 or greater definitely does not work. And 60% of this country fits in that category. So please check your BMI, body mass index. Just Google it, throw down your height, your weight. And if it's 26 or greater, do the Ella, do the IUD, not the plan B and its generics. And we're telling everybody double up, not on hormonal methods and not on your condom, but condom plus hormonal methods for anybody that's doing heterosexual activity and um, certainly the copper IUD and hormones. But if you double up, the risk of pregnancy goes further down and then automate your birth control. And thank you, Sophia. And we've had a lot of your resources on uh, our website. So thank you for that very uh, good common sense information. Kelly, I want to go back to the conversation with respect to this decision, because Justice Alito referred to physicians who provide an abortion as abortionist, not as healthcare providers. And we've seen how dangerous pregnancy can be. 
And yet we are already hearing stories of physicians having to wait to get permission from a state entity to provide that needed health care. And at least one recent case, a woman died. So what are some of the things that might initiate a termination of a pregnancy with respect to a medical condition? Yeah, I think that's a great question. But before I go into that, I just think we need to remind everyone that words really matter, right? So I am a uh, OBGYN. I take care of women. I supply all of women's health care. I deliver babies. I provide abortions. I provide infertility care. I, I think it's extremely disheartening that a Supreme Court justice would use the word abortionist to describe someone who's gone their entire life with the sole purpose of taking care of women in a safe manner. And that's what leads to the violence and the corruption and everything else. And so I think we just all need to keep that in mind as well. So when I was in training, um, I was in an institution that was more conservative, right? And so the only abortion care I provided was for really dire situations. And so we, we heard mentioned in the first panel that sepsis is something, and that is an infection. So what happens with that? So for example, if you have a second trimester fetus, which means that it is not viable, cannot survive on its own, very sadly, even if you very much wanted this pregnancy, if you break your water early, you are more at risk for something called sepsis or septic abortion. And what happens is bacteria gets into that uterus. You can get very sick. You can go into septic shock and you can die. And so it is our job to be able to care for you in a safe fashion. There was a young woman who died of a septic abortion, which was kind of held up when we were arguing all of this early on. And so what happens is if a physician is told they're going to be sued, they're going to be fined, they're going to be felons, they're going to go to jail, you know, certainly that makes a lot of people take pause. And so they're not going to act as swiftly to care for these individuals. And that's, what's very concerning to me. So this whole process is so extreme that physicians are being held to a standard that's impossible. And when we talk about moral injury and burnout and everything else, which we've all faced during COVID, that is going to be compounded with this. So OBGYNs who are already at a 70% burnout rate now are likely going to be at like 98%. And that's why so many are going to be leaving because we can't do what's in the best interest for our patients. In Missouri, for example, there was an ectopic pregnancy that people were just observing in no way, shape, reform is an ectopic pregnancy ever going to be viable. That's a pregnancy that's outside the normal uterine cavity. So typically in the fallopian tube, it can be in other locations as well, but those are more rare. And so what happens is as that grows, it's going to rupture and it's going to cause internal bleeding. And so physicians were delaying action until we saw vital sign changes or hemoglobin dropping, meaning that there's internal bleeding for a non-viable pregnancy. So women are at risk, their safety's at risk, need for further hospitalization, need for blood transfusion, need for more emergent surgical intervention. All these things are compounded by the fact that people who are creating this policy are not healthcare providers, are not physicians, are not taking care of these women. According to a study published in April in Obstetrics and Gynecology, 128 of the 286 OBGYN residency programs in the United States are located in the 26 states that either had trigger laws already in place or are likely to restrict abortion. This means that roughly 45% of those programs will no longer offer training in abortion skills, which, by the way, are also, as we all know, miscarriage skills. What will be the impact? 
Well, honestly, we're going to have an entire generation of physicians who are not going to be able to do full scope OBGYN. And coming out the other side of COVID, we also are seeing some deficiencies in areas because of lack of elective surgery and lack of guidance skills that we've had. And so when we see these graduates and then we force their hand not being trained appropriately, we're handicapping an entire generation of physicians. Which means in terms of health outcomes? So obviously we're going to have worse health outcomes. We're going to have less safe surgery. We're going to have more people with um, problems with things like uterine perforation and infection and surgical complications. And that's going to lead to more adverse health effects for women. So we've created a situation where we're in a spiral that's going to affect patient safety for years to come. All right. Well, I hate to end on that note. And there were so many other questions I wanted to ask all of you, including we know that women with rheumatoid arthritis, endometriosis, and cancer are also not being able to get their drugs because they're considered abortion drugs. And so they're not being able to change to treat their diseases. And again, as you pointed out, Linda, the chronic conditions that are impacting individuals are significant. I want to thank this panel for your expertise, your skill, and sharing your knowledge. And hopefully you'll come back and we'll have a longer conversation. That was a lot of information. So here are the takeaways. The ban on abortion will impact women of color and low-income women disproportionately. Most women who choose abortion are more likely to already have children, and they make the decision primarily on economic grounds. It's estimated that poverty rates in states banning abortion will increase by 15 to 20 percent. This then has a snowball effect, leading to lack of access to housing, food, and health care, which can then lead to more chronic disease and even higher rates of death for populations that are already at risk. The United States has a higher maternal and infant mortality rate than any other developed country, and the trajectory is getting worse, not better. With bans in place across many states, physicians may be afraid of providing needed care to a pregnant woman who may be suffering a complication. This will increase the already growing maternal mortality rate and has already led to physicians leaving those states that are banning abortion and, for some, leaving the practice of medicine altogether. This creates healthcare deserts where needed OBGYN care is no longer available, leading to more health risks for people in those communities. The ban will also have an impact on how physicians are trained. The same skills used in abortion are those used to treat miscarriage, for example. But in those states that ban abortion, these skills may not be taught, leading to an entire generation of undertrained practitioners, which could lead to more bad outcomes. It's important to know your options to avoid an unwanted pregnancy. For example, the copper IUD is the most effective emergency contraception, followed by the hormonal IUD. The second most effective is oral emergency contraception, also called the morning-after pill. But these are fallback options. It's much more effective to use contraception such as the pill, patch, ring, or implant on a regular basis or have an IUD already in place. Doubling up, such as using pills plus condoms, provides extra protection. I hope we've provided you with useful information not only for yourself, but for others in your life. Please do share this podcast with them. And let us know what you think on our forum under Aftershocks at beyondthepapergown.com. And check out our resources. We'll be updating those frequently. 
The link to the full discussion and entire webinar is available on our website as well. Thank you for listening. I do hope you'll join us if you enjoyed today's episode. Please subscribe. For more information on this episode or for additional episodes, links, and comments, find us at beyondthepapergown.com or follow us on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. This episode of Beyond the Paper Gown was produced by Patrick Shumbayati and Dr. Mitzi Krakow. Until next time, stay healthy and centered.